It was asked that we mark 348, and we're certainly happy to do that and look forward to again singing a song of praise and adoration, even as that particular time is called an opportunity of invitation. O Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The beautiful refrain of Psalm 26.8 helps us see tonight what a blessing it is that we've been able to assemble and to gather like this. Even as Brother Gary mentioned as he led us in that prayer, how thankful we can be that all is sufficiently well with us to permit us to assemble. This evening as we come to this part of our service, I might invite you to consider a lesson that was announced in the bulletin and also on the wall to my left about the baptism for the dead. A particular phrase found in that text that was read a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And as we give some thought over the next few moments to that particular subject, I trust that we each will be drawn to a more powerful appreciation of the nature of the baptism for the dead and the understanding that attaches to it and the opportunity that's ours to be faithful servants of His while yet alive. It is because of all of that some introductory remarks might well be in order. As you consider some of those thoughts on that particular slide, all of us within the sound of my voice, I'm sure, would gladly echo the marvelous refrain of the purity and perfectness of the Word of God. It is all inspired by Him, 2 Timothy 3.16, and as such it presents in fullness the will that was His desire for you and me to know. 2 Peter 1.3 still reminds us that we appreciate so powerfully that all things that pertain unto life and godliness have been revealed through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And since all of it has been revealed, we need not fear that there are some particular matters missing or that there are some particular features left at this point unrevealed. But to say that all of it is, has been revealed and to say that it's perfect does not mean that there aren't some difficult passages within it. And that does not mean that there aren't some matters that will challenge you and me to rightly divide it and to come to a full appreciation of what we do find written therein. In fact, the very passage before us tonight might well fall into that latter category. The baptism for the dead. Inasmuch as the inspired penman wrote that for our consideration in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15, we can rest assured it is a part of the inspired Word of God. But what was it that was the matter of critical interest there, and what lessons might there be in it for you and me today? Being baptized for the dead. This next slide leads us to appreciate first what some have taught based primarily on that passage. Our interest is, at least at this point in the lesson, is to at least familiarize ourselves with what some have taught based on it and later in the lesson to ascertain whether that's correct or not. You'll notice there near the top, let's reground ourselves in appreciating the thoroughness of the biblical teaching of baptism. It is so simple. Didn't Jesus say in Mark 16, beginning in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. A reminder of the critical and basic need both of belief and of baptism. But wasn't it Matthew in the closing three verses of that book? 20, chapter 28, verses 18 and following. When Jesus triumphantly said, All power has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. We notice that the Lord thus commissioned those apostles, you go into every nation and you teach with hopeful hearts that will emanate into baptism, that individuals will appreciate the urgency of the moment, the power of the gospel, and will in haste respond in faith to it. For it still is true that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul could thus so quickly say that he wasn't ashamed to preach it, he felt himself a debtor to preach it, and he felt himself under obligation to preach it. Baptism was a critical part in that gospel message, and it has remained so to those faithful to the gospel now for 20 centuries or so. The character of that baptism leads us to appreciate even the Lord. Though he had no sin, he nonetheless submitted himself to that obligation of baptism, Matthew 3, 15 to 18, and in so doing, set for us evermore an example. I say all of that to say this. Many religious groups themselves appreciate the importance of baptism. It's etched virtually on every page of the New Testament. But in their appreciation of it, they have come to some conclusions which nonetheless are not correct as one compares the fullness of Bible's teaching concerning that subject. A case in point is at the bottom of that slide. I would invite you to notice the following quotation. It is taken verbatim from the website of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is a very serious attempt to simply recognize what they believe and teach concerning this matter. And it reads as follows. And I quote, Baptism in water is an ordinance essential for our salvation. The Savior revealed the the proper method of baptism to the prophet Joseph Smith, making clear that the ordinance must be performed by one having priesthood authority and that it be done by immersion. And it's clear that even they appreciate, do they not, the necessity and the importance of baptism. It's even stated so clearly for all to appreciate. They are mis mistaken, though, in stating that the correctness wasn't understood until the days of Joseph Smith. And they do have many other things amiss if you look more deeply into these, some of the more finer details of that site. But the point is, they do at least recognize the Bible does teach baptism. One might wonder, given that they teach the essentiality of it, how do they take 1 Corinthians 15, 29? It is that that leads us to the following observations also from this same group. In fact, they hold very vehemently to the need, in fact, the necessity, the essentiality for the members of that church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to cling to and, in fact, to practice the baptism for the dead. They do that in a very unusual and somewhat interesting way. In fact, you may notice that the headquarters for that group is in Salt Lake City out here in the western part of our country. But you may notice, if you've actually seen pictures of that, that there is a rather notable baptismal pool in that temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it is their considered belief that it is necessary to be baptized, if at all possible, in the waters of that pool. For supposedly it's very special. And supposedly there are matters attached to it. And thus, that leads us to observe the following. 
the urgency that attaches in their doctrine, first of all, baptism for the dead of one's own family members, and certainly also in a larger context for others. First, what might we mean by these others, and what might we mean by this being baptized for the dead? It all comes from that next paragraph. For just a moment, suppose that an individual is not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and furthermore, suppose one has never been baptized in accordance to Mormon doctrine. At this point, the Mormons are in the following predicament, or at least the following situation. It is their belief that such an one must be baptized according to the proper, in their mind, Mormon doctrine, but if one has not done that and dies, at this point, there is the following conclusion. In the way that they view things, the spirits of those who have passed are housed in the prison house, and in so doing, they will yet have another opportunity to respond in a favorable fashion to the gospel invitation, to the gospel call, to the gospel effort, if you please. However, that's only conditioned on whether someone has been baptized for that person. In other words, if someone here on earth was baptized on their behalf, then they will have opportunity in the life after this one to respond in a favorable way and move themselves into a position in which their status for eternity will be far better than it would otherwise be. You perhaps can see then what they view concerning the baptism for the dead. In fact, there have been those who have honestly stated that they have entered into that temple out there in Salt Lake City and been baptized for any number of individuals of the long since distant past. One individual on one occasion said that he had entered and been baptized for the sake of Benedict Arnold. And you and I remember the statement or the case that he served back in the early days of our own country in the latter part of the 1700s. At this point, of course, you and I with interest might ask, Baptism for the dead? Does 1 Corinthians 15, 29 teach this? If so, how have we been misgiven concerning it? But if it does not teach this, what else might have been in the mind of the Apostle Paul? And furthermore, what might be some interesting usages for you and me even today? As you notice near the bottom of that slide, we would be completely remiss not to state that they often make reference to two Bible passages as they give book, chapter, and verse asserting that it is needful to be baptized for the dead. One is the very text before us tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. The other is a closing verse to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 40. We shall return to each of those, of course, in the proper course of our study this evening. As we build some consideration about the baptism for the dead, I might invite us to approach that in the following standpoint. First of all, by observing the context in which this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is presented, but once we have a finer appreciation of that, then to cast the spotlight more directly on that verse by itself. 1 Corinthians 15 has often been called the resurrection chapter of the New Testament, I suppose because of the length in which Paul invests his discussion of that beautiful subject. The Corinthians had some misgivings about it. In fact, according to verse 12, there were even some in Corinth asserting there is no resurrection of the dead. At that point, Paul launched into an exceedingly amazing description 
of just what the resurrection involves. It'll take him through the entirety of the rest of that chapter, verse 58. As you'll notice, beginning in verse number 12, the first thing Paul does is states there are some absolute consequences. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the following things directly follow. First, it means Christ was not raised. Not only that, it demands that their preaching, that is, that preaching of the apostles and the other New Testament individuals, were in fact vain because they preached the reality of the resurrection. Furthermore, it also meant that the faith of the Corinthians was in vain. You have believed in what is not true if, in fact, there is no resurrection of the dead. Beyond that, you also notice, Paul quickly notes, the apostles, those in whom you have placed such trust, they can be considered nothing more than false prophets and false witnesses if, in fact, there is no resurrection of the dead because they preached that Christ was resurrected. And they furthermore have preached there will be a resurrection of one and all on the proper occasion at the end of time. Paul isn't finished. Not only that, you Corinthians, and yea, all of us ever since, are still in our sins if there is no resurrection of the dead. Because it means, of course, that Christ was not who He said He was if He wasn't resurrected. And that means He could not have paid the price for our sins we must still then be in our sins and thus hopelessly lost. Finally, you'll notice that what really could there be for hope after death if there is no resurrection? Verses 12 through 19 set one by one all of those things that we've just noted. You'll notice beginning in verse number 20, Paul now turns the discussion and he says, There was a resurrection because Christ was raised, and furthermore there is yet to be a grand resurrection, and all will participate in it. Christ was the first fruits, and then afterward all. And we notice that Paul's very clear, more than once using that word all. Doesn't he say that that resurrection is an absolute matter of the greatest of certainty? You and I need not have any doubts about it. And the Corinthians ought not have any either. No wonder in this lengthy chapter, Paul states to them these matters of such great interest. Matters that they needed to remember, and certainly you and I do as well. You'll notice that beyond that, we, we see in verses 23 all the way really through verse 26 that Paul gives some finer details and some added considerations about that day. We notice in particular, as we stated earlier, Christ must reign until all the enemies have been defeated, till all things put under His feet, if you please. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed, He said, is death. Christ Jesus is reigning today in regal and royal splendor over His spiritual body, the marvelous church. And as He rules in supreme authority over it, we can appreciate how special it is to be a member of that body. And how sad it is for those who for some reason think that He is not yet reigning, but yet is supposedly going to during a period of a thousand years at some point in the future. They've missed entirely the point. He's reigning now, and as Paul here states, He's coming back, and at that time, concluding the reign, He'll hand the kingdom over to the Father. You'll notice that following that in verses 27 and 28, Paul makes a reference to, again, the absolute splendor of the reign of Christ. It's at this point as verse number 28 closes 
all things being subjugated and submissive to Him. We now find verse number 29. Again, the text reads, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And so twice in that one passage, we find that explicit phrase, baptized for the dead. And we can't help then but have our curiosity piqued as to what was it that was the thought in the mind of Paul, and more importantly, the message of the Holy Spirit as he gave those particular matters for you and me for our consideration. As you come with me to the next slide and look more interestingly at some of those matters, you'll notice that we're in position to notice that Paul time and again, for a number of explicit reasons, has asserted that there was a resurrection of Christ and that there will be a resurrection of one and all. Paul had no doubts about this and he was attempting to convince the Corinthians that those among them, or at least those in the community, who thought that there was no resurrection were vastly mistaken. In fact, they were just completely in error. You'll remember that later, in 2 Timothy 1, Paul there reminded them that there were some of that day who were saying the resurrection has passed already. We can easily see in the first century there were many false ideas about the resurrection. Some thinking that there was no such thing, some thinking it had passed, others with various and sundry misgivings about it. In this context, we notice that verse 29 makes mention of this baptism for the dead. First of all, a bit about the language employed in the verse. That word for literally means in behalf of, or in the place of, or instead of. And so we sense that there was a great notion attached to the way in which we likely heard it read a moment ago. You'll also notice that this particular phrase is one that has occasioned a fairly large amount of discussion and even controversy throughout the years. Baptism for the dead. There have been some who have even asserted that maybe we should take the word dead in a figurative fashion and thus assert that really Paul didn't in this verse at least mean literally those who physically had died. It seems to me that verse 29 will not allow that kind of interpretation. Again, Paul simply says, if the dead rise not at all. The context throughout this chapter has involved physical death and the resurrection that would follow it. You'll notice in light of that, it seems we can't easily simply say it's something figurative. We can't easily say that it's something that doesn't attach to what really was being asserted by some in that day and time. It would seem that two possibilities might exist relative to the assertions of that verse. Let's look at the first one for just a moment. First of all, here seems to be a very strong possibility. Perhaps it was the case that some that were known to the members of the church in Corinth were actually teaching and practicing baptism for the dead. If that be the case, then you'll notice these comments would naturally follow. First of all, we could easily thus be able to say, Paul would then ask, if indeed it's true, as some are saying, that there is no resurrection of the dead, why is it that in your very midst there are some who are practicing this? 
That would be a fairly strong argument, admittedly, at least causing them to think about the nature of what was being done and the opposite viewpoint of those who are saying that, in fact, there was no resurrection. Even beyond that, though, you might notice, if that was the case, that is in no way saying that Paul was supportive of this idea of being baptized for the dead. In fact, that's one of the oldest ways to approach any kind of discussion. It's one of the most familiar ways even to attach to a discussion of debating today. You familiarize yourself with the claims of your opponent. It's not that you believe the claims are correct, but you familiarize yourself with them. You, in fact, become thoroughly acquainted with them, and then you use them in the course of the debate in the proper ways to, in fact, show the inconsistency of your opponent. It's the oldest trick, in a way, that there is in debating. Could it be here that Paul simply makes note of this which was being practiced by at least some in Corinth, and he was in no sense giving his approval of it, but using it as a tool to help them see the inconsistency in their claim there was no resurrection when at the very time there were some being baptized for the dead? It really would be a very inconsistent appreciation on their part, wouldn't it? You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, Today, that is still an exceedingly common approach, isn't it? When you and I have a discussion with someone who, for instance, doesn't think that it matters whether you have a mechanical instrument of music in worship, one of the things that you and I can effectively do is familiarize ourselves with their thinking, the line of argumentation that they will make, and then use it against them. Aren't we doing the very same thing, if that's true, that Paul did? What about you and I when we have discussions with those who do not believe in baptism as the Bible teaches it? Again, we perhaps would familiarize ourselves with what they do believe and teach. And then we would, of course, use the way that they see things together with the Word of God to show the inconsistency of it. It is really no different at all, is it? If that be the approach stated here, you'll notice in a moment we'll come back to this point. And notice we can re be sure that Paul was not a believer in baptism for the dead as it was being practiced, if that's true. Another possibility, though, might be this one. You'll notice that it could be that one might read verse number 29 in the following way. Namely, as a statement that one is baptized in view of the hope of the resurrection. In other words, you recognize that at the time of that great resurrection, you look forward to the resurrection in which you can come forth as in a resurrection of life. Not as if you would remain in that grave, not as if there is no such thing. Rather, you're simply baptized in light of the grand hope of that glorious resurrection. If that be true again, it would be Paul asking, Why then were you ever baptized if you don't believe in the resurrection? Because after all, baptism points directly and squarely to the fullness of the nature of that entity, the glorious resurrection at the end of time. At least from a language standpoint, it seems to me that that one perhaps is not as strong as the former possibility. It does require that one look upon death as a substitute for baptism. And perhaps the language won't so strongly permit that. Although it seems to me, at least as far as I'm aware, that that's the other best way to look at it. Either of these ways perhaps leads us to say this. 
in the verse following this one, verse 30, the context very clearly takes us back to the following statement. Paul then makes mention of himself and the other apostles and says, Why do you suppose that we were in jeopardy every hour if there was no resurrection? We have lived the matter of faith. We have been willing to die for the sake of the resurrection. We trust it completely. He sets that before them as another powerful argument. Why do you suppose that we would be so convinced of it if there were nothing true in it or if there were any sense of doubt in us about it? Again, those apostles, one by one, often suffered mightily. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he was beaten and shipwrecked and in perils and a number of other allotments because of his dedication to the faith and because of his belief and consistency in the Word of God. Perhaps in finality, you and I might come back and say this. A moment ago in this lesson made note of that teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Being baptized on behalf of someone else, as if in some future arena that would allow them possibility to be saved, though they never attended to that fact while they were here in the flesh. We can rest assured the New Testament doesn't teach this. One of the ways is to ask about a number of those verses and a number of those passages that highlight in such clear terms the features of the need for your obedience and mine. May I invite you to look one by one at just a few of these. In Romans 2 verse number 6, from the pen of the same man that wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul, as he wrote that letter to the Roman brethren, as he dictated it and Tertius actually copied it down, we remember that he very clearly said, speaking about the nature of judgment and the need that goes along with it, he said, Who will judge every man according to his deeds? And that preposition, his, is in the original text. That wasn't an insertion on the part of any translator. Each of us will be judged according to his deeds, not someone that was baptized for me, not someone who by some other way acted in my behalf. Each of us will be judged according to our deeds individually. Do we not read later in the Roman letter, Romans 14, 12, So then every one of us shall give account of himself, personal pronoun, singular in character, again to God. We each will give account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So far, all the emphases have been on the reality of judgment and their facing of it will be on an individual basis. Someone is not able to answer on that day for me, nor can I for anyone else. There are other verses, though, that take us to this conclusion. Perhaps on the last page of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 12, one last time, Jesus the Christ reminded us, on the reality of that day when the judgment will be according to His deeds, when you and I will be judged on the basis of that day, on the deeds done in your body and mine individually, I would invite you to consider the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. 
Beginning in verse 13 of that chapter, Paul again in a magnificent way describes the reality of that occasion of the resurrection. There is an aspect in verse number 13, however, which seems to me to answer very carefully to the question that's been placed before us this afternoon. Remember, we were discussing the baptism for the dead. And yet on this occasion, Paul rather interestingly puts a point that seems to outlaw this completely. I would invite you to read it with me. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not as others which have no hope. And we'll simply pause there to note this. Paul was discussing this issue that was a bit of a confusion to the Thessalonians. All throughout this book, and even to some extent in 2 Thessalonians, they had been misgiven. They had received some misinformation and had tended to believe it. Part of it related to the second coming of Christ and what would unfold at that time. It was in the midst of that, Paul here had to correct some matters. Verse 13 again. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Paul didn't want them to be concerned about something over which there need be no concern. And he didn't want them to misunderstand anything. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant. Verse 13, concerning them which are asleep. That is, those which have died. Those that have passed from the fleshly scenes of this life. But the verse closes by saying that ye sorrow not. They were very concerned about their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died. They had been led to believe that Jesus' return was coming soon and that it was necessary to be alive in order to receive the grandeur and greatness of all the blessings. And therefore, to those who were their brothers and sisters that had died, they were now concerned. They've died and won't be able to enjoy the fullness of these blessings because the Lord's soon going to come back. Paul said, you don't need to sorrow over this. But the verse ends by saying, as others that have no hope. The Holy Spirit thus here stated there were some that had died that had no hope. What does that say about this Mormon doctrine? It looks like if that were true, they would not have been in a state of no hope for somebody could have been baptized for them and they would then have had opportunity for hope. Paul said there are some that have died that literally have no hope. They have given up on the last opportunity they had to respond to the invitation of the gospel. They have forsaken the last opportunity that they ever shall have and they literally are now in a position and in a state of no hope. This seems to quash completely any possible correctness of that Mormon doctrine. You'll notice in a triumphant way Paul goes on to say this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words." That's reading through verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul, rather than stating the occasion that this was one for sorrow, one that's died in the Lord has every right 
for you and me to consider a state of rejoicing. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. It is for those reasons that we come there near the bottom. Maybe the Hebrew writer summed it up in about as brief a way as it might be summarized. Hebrews 9, 27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. The Hebrew writer gave us a description that as far as practical consideration, the judgment follows death. In terms of understanding, there's no change in one's allotment, no change in one's disposition. After death comes the judgment. No wonder this time that we have in the flesh is a time of serious consideration and a time of very urgent recognition. Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand there is going to be a resurrection. Just as surely as Christ was raised, so too all of us will be. As you see near the bottom of that slide, we can even take this question and ask a number of other things about it. You and I know that salvation eternally depends on faithfulness after one's baptized. It's not that one can just claim entrance into heaven based on the moment of baptism. We must remain faithful until death. And so the question might be, that gentleman that was baptized for Benedict Arnold, are you willing to give every Sunday for him? Are you willing to evangelize for him? Are you willing to do every other required act on his behalf, even if his baptism by you would do any good? It is interesting to consider, would one be willing to do all those other things on his behalf too? You see, this proxy baptism, as we might well describe it, where that word proxy means done on behalf of another, the New Testament doesn't teach that. It does teach the necessity of baptism, and each one must respond in faith to it for himself or herself. It is a very special thing still to consider baptism, isn't it? Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 says, Know ye not? As Paul asked that question, again, reminding us that the answer is built into the question. As he spoke about baptism, how that you and I can rise to walk in a new life. It is baptism that allows that to take place. As we come to the closing part of our lesson this evening, the Mormon doctrine, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, though placed such emphasis upon this baptism for the dead, they have the understanding, or we should hope that they do, that that teaching is not found in the pages of the New Testament. Joseph Smith, in fact, as near as I can tell, first taught that, at least in their doctrine, in August of 1840. That is 18 centuries after the New Testament era. And as we've learned tonight, the New Testament doesn't teach it at all. It's a sadness to think then that those can be given to something that is false, but how special it is to appreciate what's true. Jesus taught the true doctrine about baptism, and we have mentioned many of those verses this evening near the beginning of the lesson. It might be tonight that there's one or more in this audience who, as you think about the nature of your life, perhaps you've never attended to that need of baptism if not, why not this very night? If you have attended to it, but you haven't lived faithfully to the calling of that occasion, remember, prior to that baptism, you made a confession that with all your heart you believed Jesus to be the Christ. Have you followed faithfully to the statement of that confession? Have you lived in open compliance to then what the statement of the Lord has been? 
If you haven't, why not allow us to pray with you, to pray for you, to beseech God to forgive you, that all again might be well with you. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a song of invitation. And it is the Lord's invitation. Not mine, not our elders, but the invitation of God. And if, and if you wish to respond to that invitation, we would be delighted to assist you and to help you in the ways the New Testament would allow us to do so that you can rest tonight in a safe way, knowing that things are well with you and your soul. If at this very moment we could be of help to you in your response, why not, in fact, at this very minute, do something about that and come while together we stand and while we sing?